You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. If you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you. But we're going to open the Bible. And as we've been uh, walking through the Psalms, that is the songs and prayers of the Old Testament, we'll be in the 61st Psalm. And so you'll find the Psalms right smack dab in the middle. But please don't be, uh, don't be, uh, don't be afraid to use the table of contents to, to get to know kind of the layout of the Bible. And, and so we'll be in the Psalms. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're going this morning as you make your way there to Psalm 61. Uh, the Psalms serve as the, the poems or songs or hymns. If you think about maybe even as we gather to, to take part in, in a, a, a pretty mysterious thing in the life of our own culture, that is a few minutes ago, we, we sing together. That is, there's something that's going on that we believe takes place. And as we meet with God in Christ and experience his presence and the, uh, the outpouring of, of our being restored to him and being made in his image is art. That is that we create. It is in our nature to be like the God who has created the universe and to create things. And there are some things that cannot be expressed or understood or apprehended apart from artistic expression. There are some things that you can't explain or quantify. They simply are expressed in the mysterious, and I don't even mind saying miraculous, experience of artistic expression. And so if you think about the 150 psalms, these hymns or songs, they're similar to the songs that we just sang, that that as as far as we're aware are the natural and good, and maybe I would even argue supernatural and good expressions of experiencing God's presence, of knowing who God is and seeing something so awe-inspiring, so beautiful, so amazing that, that we put them into artistic form, whether it's in rhyming, right, or in a melody, or in a painting, or, or any other thing, hopefully even over the next few minutes, a oratory, right, something that's pleasing, something, hopefully, right, something that in some ways resonates with us deeply and, and does something that simply quantifying something mathematically or otherwise cannot do. And so, these are the songs of the life of faith. As I shared with you over the last couple of weeks, and you've heard in the last few weeks as we've been walking through these psalms this summer, these are, in many ways, the lessons of the language of faith. So if you're in this room this morning, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm especially glad you're here. And I hope that you'll eavesdrop in on what we believe is a conversation using the language of faith. And so if you're not a believer, I want you to hear exactly why it is that Christians believe what they believe and why it is that Christians use the language that we use to describe who God is and what we have beheld in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have, who have begun to, to apprehend it by faith, the mystery of Christ, I want you to lean in and listen to the language that helps us more than just kind of apprehend with our own minds for it to settle down into the depths of our hearts in ways that otherwise might not be possible. And so we find ourselves in the 61st Psalm. This is a Psalm like a full third of the Psalms, a lament, a cry out of distress, a cry out of despair. And so maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe this morning, maybe you're you're coming off of a really great week, right? Maybe, uh, Maybe things are amazing for you. And so this might sound foreign to you. And so all I would say is I want you to listen in and lean into this language because it is likely, if not absolutely certain, that the people around you might not be as happy as you are. And you might be in a position to encourage and build them up in ways that that maybe some others cannot. 
But for the rest of us, even the lesson that over a third of the Psalms, right? Think about like over a third of the songs that, that are sung here or these poems and these prayers that are expressed in the Psalms are lament, are crying out to God in despair. And that's at least because, you know, proportionally speaking, isn't one out of at least three days filled with, dis- filled with despair, right? Isn't there at least one out of every three days that's not quite right? And so at the very least, we're invited to find the language of what it means to experience in a broken and fallen world despair. And so this is one of the shortest psalms. We'll read all eight verses, beginning with the caption. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name. As I perform my vows day after day. I want to talk to you a little bit about fear and anxiety. And I want to commend to you one of many places in the scripture where we're offered comfort and a way of expressing and addressing our own fear and anxiety. In this psalm, David cries out to God for a circumstance we're not made aware of. We don't really know. There are several scholars that contend. I mean, after all, if you read the story of David through First and Second Samuel, I commend them to you. You begin to realize there was more than one occasion where people wanted to kill David, sometimes justifiably so. But there were more than one occasion where David was crying out to God for help because he was in dire circumstances. So it could have been any of those things. But All we do know is that for whatever reason, he was feeling as though God could not hear him since we see he cries out for God to do just that, to listen, as though it wasn't already true. He felt far from God, distant from God, such that his heart was faint in verse 2, and he wanted to be led back to the presence of God, that is the rock that is greater or higher than he was. He, He calls back to his experience of being cared for and and a desire to be back dwelling in God's presence, therefore his tent and safe in his refuge forever. And then he responds with a way of saying that surely this is what God will do. Ask God to bless the king, the throne that is that he sits on himself. It might seem self-serving, but we'll dig into that in just a moment. Such that he promises, I will continue to praise you forever because I know you have heard me. And so what it is that he was afraid of or the circumstances that we know uh, or the circumstances he's been experienced, we do not know. But we do know the effects. 
And I want to commend to you this as an encouragement, maybe something you can memorize or even recite, hopefully a vocabulary, a vocabulary lesson of what it means to experience brokenness in the world. And these are recurring topics in the Psalms. That is lament, loneliness, fear, feeling as though God is not near, feeling separated and far from God. They are recurring topics in the Psalms because I believe they're recurring experiences in a broken, fallen world that is marred by sin. And so I want to talk to you about anxiety and fear. I'll speak to you personally about how this has been a psalm that has been deeply impactful for me and helpful for me. Um, I'll speak to you as a, a person who is, I know many of you have been fighting different levels of anxiety across the spectrum of kinds of anxiety and depression that I can't even imagine. But, but for me, it's something that has crept up on me more and more the older I get. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is because I'm just getting older, right? Uh, brain scientists are, are helping us see this over the last decade, how uh, the, the brains of men are formed much slower and take much longer to form permanently than women, right? The, the way that, we, that they, they describe this is that men have a harder, a harder time earlier on. The, here's the language they use, internalizing the long-term consequences of their actions, right? So, for example, that is, I've told you this before, this is why if you ever see uh, 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 someone on a motorcycle, you know, woo, woo, flying in and out of traffic, it's never an old woman. <laughs> never. And again, if, that's, if I'm wrong and you know that, per I would love to meet them, They're, right? But brain scientists have, have begun to show us that like as, you know, th this is actually beauty uh, that God created us this way. This is what, is what makes young men courageous and great warriors and protectors because they can't internalize the, like, the consequences of their actions, right? Like the motorcycle guy, uh, or like all the guys that my wife hates that I watch on YouTube that jump off of bridges and fly down mountains and all that. Oh, they're awesome, right? They have externalized the consequences of their actions. That is, if you say, hey, that's dangerous, they don't internalize that. They externalize it. They immediately go like, oh, that's someone else. Yeah, someone else is probably going to die doing that, but not me. And so even just for me in the last decade, I guess as my brain has become fully formed, or maybe something deeper and more spiritual has happened, anxiety has become a more close companion with me than it ever has been. Now, in many ways, that might not be as new as, as I want to admit. It, I've always been terrified of failure. I've always experienced a pressure and a fear of not measuring up my whole life. It's, it's how why sports, in many ways, has been a great therapeutic work for me because it's, it's forced me to face a level of anxiety and pressure that maybe otherwise I wouldn't be able to deal with. Because after all, there's a good level of anxiety and then there's a bad level. There's a good level of fear that God has given us, right? The fear of starving allows you to make a meal, right? Go find food. That's a functional kind of anxiety. But you know that there, there, a line crosses to where that anxiety becomes no longer functional, but it becomes irrational and dysfunctional. And you stop, you stop responding healthily to that anxiety and then you become paralyzed and you shut down. Now, all of that in my own personal experience won't help you understand Psalm 61 any better. But it might help you see at least one way that I know this psalm has been an encouragement to a person myself. Because when he describes the state of his current reality, did you hear it in verse 2? His heart is faint. And if I were to describe my own personal experience of fear and anxiety, the kind of fear that I feel like I've carried with me and I know that I will carry until Jesus comes back, this, this is how I would describe it. A faintness of heart. Right? My, my heart is empty and faint. It, it, it had, doesn't have the ability to be courageous. Right? Let's go. It doesn't have the ability to see optimism. We're going to make it. 
It doesn't even have the ability to see a, a sense of uh, like my own limits or abilities. Like we can do this. It, it just, you just shut down. Have you ever been there? In your own experience of life in a broken, fallen world, have you ever felt what David describes here in the second verse, a faintness of heart? Have you ever felt that your heart is faint? You shut down. I know for me, my own faintness of heart and a, a fear of failure, a fear of, same here, feel of being, fear of being isolated plays out in kind of a, in, in my own procrastination, right? So, so it's, it's an ironic kind of thing that this kind of fear of performing that is crippling at times, and God has called me to every single Sunday stand up and stand up in front of a bunch of people and say something meaningful. But there are times when my own fear of being able to be uh, uh, contribute anything, right, is paralyzing, and I do nothing. And so, if over the, if over the course of the last few years you found yourself saying, "I think you wrote that sermon like yesterday," right? That's probably true. It's probably over the course of that week I was so afraid, so terrified of of being able to do anything, I'm so terrified of my own failure that my own faintness of heart caused me to just melt down. I do everything, things, right? I don't know, whenever you do this, I, I, uh, I, over, I start to overperform. If I'm scared of this thing, I'll just become productive over here. I'm going to go build a rocket. You're like, shouldn't you be over? No, I'll just build a rocket, right? It's, I'm going to get everything done except for the thing I'm the most afraid of. Be paralyzed and do nothing. Terrified in the end of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, which strangely enough ends up sometimes happening anyway. Now, it may be different for every one of you, but I want you at least to see the ways that personally this has been an encouragement to me. This is the faintness of heart that I regularly experience. And in this psalm, the faintness of heart that David is experiencing is due to needing refuge from, did you hear that? The enemy in verse 3. He needs refuge. The first four verses are a desire for safety. He uses so many different words to do it. But, but let's, let's walk through them. We'll kind of take a few different, because it's a short, we'll kind of take a few laps through this sermon. And I want you to see the, the, what we find is like the nature of lament and faintheartedness, a, a longing for safety and refuge and comfort, and then an end, we, which we find here is glory and praise. So lament, a cry out to God, you see at the beginning, a desire for refuge, and then in light of what he prays for, for the king, and the, in this case, the longevity of the king, a praise and glory. So, let's start this. start this way. Lament is necessary because suffering is real and inevitable. Now, I shared this with you last week that uh, an imprecatory psalm, a psalm that calls curses down on the enemy, is actually something we're invited to do. And even uh, psalms that often cry out to God in ways that don't rightly reflect his character are not things that upset God. But they bother us, right? If you misrepresent me, I immediately become offended. But if you misrepresent God, it doesn't bother him. In fact, he just meets us there. So he, he cries out to God, think of this, for something that he's already been promised. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer, right? As though, as though God hadn't already promised to be exactly that for David and his people. So David thinks in this case something a little low of God. He thinks something small of God, which I want to encourage you, is exactly what we do. And yet God meets us there. And so it's right in a, in a world that's marred and broken by sin, since sin ultimately causes separation, he 
calls out to God because that experience of pain and brokenness in a, in a, in a fallen world is normal. Let me say that again. The experience of pain in a broken, fallen world is normal. It's right to lament. It's right to, at times, and this is, this, is, this is the tricky part. I don't think our culture knows how to deal with this. I think we immediately, we immediately kind of turn to all sorts of different alternatives to solve this as a problem. But the despair of life is a normal, natural part of the life of faith. The feeling, I can't go on, or I don't want to go on, is actually a good and right assessment of sin in the world. That is, we saw in the, in the book of James, a letter of Jesus' brother to the church, that, like, that you begin to love and become friends with the world, you become an enemy of God. And so in many ways, when you, if you look around at the brokenness of the world, if you look around at the suffering, and, and, and if you look around the loss and the experience of pain in the world, and you're like, that's cool, then something's wrong with you. Something's broken, right? To, to just read and listen and see some of the difficult things and awful things that people are going through around the world right now. If you, if you hear that and go like, eh, that's cool, you know, more please, then you aren't seeing it rightly. But if you look at it and see like, this is awful, this seems hopeless, I don't want to go on, then in many ways the psalmist here would say, you're seeing it, you get it. That's a good first step to first recognize something is not right. So he says, hear, God. Hear me when I cry out to you the things that are not right. Hear them. But notice what we learn from his confession in verse 2. From the end of the earth, he feels separated. But then he says, when my heart is faint. That, that's such a, again, poetic language, artistic language, to get at something that you and I feel that you can't rightly quantify. You can't, you can't really mathematically quantify faintness of heart, right? Even if I told you like on a scale of 1 to 100, how faint is your heart? Even then you'd be like, Ugh. it'd be hard to find a way to quantify it. It's an artistic and in this case like an allegory, a picture, a weakness. Imagine your heart giving out, too weak to go on. But notice what this tells us about the experience of the world and the cry out to God that we have here. Hope cannot be found by looking within. So you may start and encourage to start with the despair of life of kind of like, man, this is broken. We need help. Something's got to change. I don't want to go on in this. But our first and most natural inclination is when we experience that to look in. Now, this might look different for you or for the people around you, but it could be to look inside to solve the problem, right? It could be to look inside to to kind of get over it, to cope with it. But, but notice what he says. The faintness, the weakness, the frailty that ails him is where? It's in his own heart. Now, I want to be very, very, very explicit about a couple of things. First, like this is countercultural. Don't miss how absolutely like countercultural what David is is saying here, most of us have been steeped in kind of a Western individualistic tradition that absolutely would not agree with this. It would say, you know, forget the faintness of your heart, follow, of your, follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. Like the Jude, uh, Jude tells us in the New Testament, he describes what's called sensual, uh, sensuality, which is 
in essence, if it feels right, do it, right? Which is what most of us have been steeped in. Most of us naturally believe like, I'm good, I can fix it, right? So, so we talk about this often about the, the good news of Jesus is a, is a countercultural narrative because most of what uh, Western individualists have been taught is that the problem is out there and the solution is inside you, Right? Kids, Disney and children's movies do the best at telling this story, right? You just got to let it go, right? Usually it's against parents, right? They're somehow, right? Ariel wants to get married. She's 16. Daddy, I love him. And that ends up being a good idea. Like, what? <laughs> you get it? Like, they tell these stories the best. The problem's out there, the solution. I mean, they don't get it. They don't understand you. They don't know what it means to be you. And you got to find yourself, right? And then you got to express yourself. And if you fight and if you fail, you need to sometimes forgive yourself. As though you have the capacity inside yourself to do any of those things, right? And the, the cultural narrative, the prevailing cultural narrative that is undermined by the, the story of, of the gospel here is that the problem's out there and the solution is inside of you. When the Bible comes along and it's very honest, it's much more honest than the cultural narrative. And it admits the fact that the problem is inside of you. No one has betrayed you or disappointed you as much as you. And while, while the, the individualistic culture would say that we have an alien problem and we look inside for the solution, the Bible comes along and says, no, inside is the solution, but we have, or excuse me, inside is the problem. We have an alien solution. We can look outside of ourselves. The Bible calls this repentance. We turn from what we would normally trust in. We turn from that and look and receive a gift that God gives us in Christ. We look to him and all the things that are true of him that are outside of us become imputed. That is credited, granted by grace to us. So notice when the language of faith, right, the Psalm 61 that can help you and I can be found here when he says that his faintness was at his heart level. I mean, it'd be one thing. It was like, man, you know, I, something is broken over there, which I'm certain was the case, right? Something went wrong. And yet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, David sees the real problem. He said, I don't have it within me to get through this. And notice, he's never corrected. Hope cannot be found by looking within. But notice also in verse 2, separation is the result of sin. Notice how he describes his faintness of heart. He says, like, from the end of the earth I call to you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying to God, it feels like I'm as far from you as I could possibly be. Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? When I talk about the goodness and grace of God, does that sound like I'm talking to you about a foreign country? Then hear the language of the psalmist. That's actually a part of living in a broken and fallen world. Sin, we find out through the entirety of the scripture, and the psalmist, again, gives us really good language to talk about this, separates us from God. It separates us. Now, you, intrinsically, you know that. Right? You, you, can't, you can't collaborate with that which is evil. We try to approximate that kind of a thing, and 
in, in our, our approximation of justice, right? That's why, that's why there are big fences with razor wire on prisons. Now, again, that isn't to say that, right, I'm not, I'm not trying to ignore and say that is a righteous and good. Remember, this is an approximation of justice, but there is something in us that says, like, you should go over there if you're this. You should go out here if you're this. But notice here, he's saying that I feel like I'm from, I'm, I'm talking to you from the end of the earth. I am separated from you. And that's exactly what sin does. The holiness and perfection of God cannot associate with our sinfulness. In fact, after all, he can't associate with us because that would impugn his righteousness. He would no longer be good if he associated with you and me. His presence would be an endorsement of all of the awful things that you and I have done. And so sin separates. It, it causes God to be separated from his people. But how does he respond? He requests, lead me to the rock that is higher than I for you have been my refuge. So notice, he, he, he doesn't like backtrack on feeling faint, faint in his heart. He doesn't backtrack on feeling separated from God. He acknowledges those things. But what's his response? He responds by saying, you have been my. I love that. What a beautiful thing to consider. Here's, here's the way I would say this. I'm paraphrasing uh, uh, the wisdom of someone else. We bank on the promises of God. We are able to bank on the promises of God. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the wisdom of a uh, 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 phenomenal author and character, Corey Ten Boom, who, who survived the Holocaust and, and has published many different things about how she felt like it was, it was the presence of God that got her through great suffering. But one of the things I, uh, she wrote, she described, she described talking about how she got through suffering by thinking of the promises of God as checks that have been written that she can both deposit and write. Now, I recognize this analogy is going to fall flat for some of you because you have never received or written a check. Okay, so for just a minute, I'm going to talk about the old-timey days. And while I do that, you think about how Venmo, uh, how I could translate the promises of God to Venmo, okay? But, so, a check is a promissory note. It, is a, it, it doesn't have any value in and of itself, but you sign it, and it's a promise that your bank is going to fulfill. And so Corey Ten Boom described how she would experience suffering, and she would, she would simply, in order to combat it, she would rehearse the promises of God to never leave her, to never forsake her. And she said she would imagine in her own head endorsing them, right? Again, this, right? Yeah, yeah just nod. You totally endorsed check this week. You sign the back of the check, in which case you're saying, I received this. That's, that, that's not helpful. So she would just deposit those checks, those promises of God. And then, this is, this is the really cool part. She said that after she would kind of imagine receiving those promises like a value, like something that had been deposited into her account, whenever she felt shame or accused by the enemy, she said she would start writing checks out of the promises of God. This is beautiful, right? She said she felt like the enemy would come and accuse her and say, you owe me blank, right? Your, your sin condemns you. You owe more than you could pay. And she said she would take out of what, a, what she'd received as a deposit from the promises of God and write checks to the enemy with it. Paid, right? Jesus, Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has promised never to, forgive, never to forget me or leave me. And so when the enemy would come and say, you're forgotten, you're abandoned, she said she would write checks out of the promises of God. So when I say this, look what he does. He, he, he looks back to how God has protected him 
and how God has promised to never leave him. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Did you, did you hear the psalmist? He's beginning to bank. He's beginning to bank on and deposit, live on, stand on the promises of God. Now, I commend to you, if you will, to, to, second, to, to read this week, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what you'll find there is an outline of the promises that God made through the prophet Nathan and some directly to David as David became king. And he promised David, he said, I will never leave you and there will all, you, one of your descendants will always be on this throne forever. I'm never going to leave these people. And one of the ways you'll know that I haven't abandoned you is that there will be one of your descendants upon this throne forever. And so do you hear him banking on that promise? For you, O oh God, you've heard my vows. You've heard my commitment. And you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. And that's saying something because this is not a perfect man who's lived a perfect life. So he banks on the promises of God by saying, prolong the life of the king. Now, as you read 2 Samuel 7 this, this week, you'll begin to see exactly what it is that he's claiming. You will not leave me. I know you're going to make good on your promise. And so therefore, I can pray. Pray, prolong the life of the king. Now, this is strange here. We don't know if he's talking directly about himself or kind of indirectly about, indirectly about the throne and the, right, and the office in which he is and, and eventually that his lineage will continue to fill. We don't know that. In fact, many scholars think that verse 5 and 6 kind of don't belong there, that David or someone else added them later. Because after all, if you read it, just read if you want, uh, excuse me, if you read, uh, skip verses um, 6 and 7, let me dwell in your tent forever, verse 4, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. It flows pretty well if you just remove verse 6 and 7. But, but what I want to contend for you is like, he begins to bank on a promise. Connect directly his hope that he, one day he's going to sing, he's going to praise. He can't see it right now. Right now his heart is faint. He can't sing praises. You've probably been there. But he's saying, I know I will. And so therefore I can make this request. God, prolong the life of the king. May he be enthroned forever, just like you promised. Now notice another thing we see here. You see there's two times this word shows up. The word vows. You see, he is speaking of commitments that he has made. He's speaking of times in verse 5, for you, O God, have heard my vows, his commitments. And then at the very end, I will ever praise and sing to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Now, now notice this is, this is a profound banking on the promises of God. He is trusting that God will answer his prayers such that in faith, he is somehow making commitments before God and the people around him. This language of vows would have been, uh, would have been common, right? You see this even in the New Testament, you see the time where, where Paul was under an oath, right? He was under a vow. Like, so from time to time, it, apparently the life of faith means we, we trust in God's promises enough that we make promises. We trust in God's promises that we start to make promises ourselves. Certainly not on par with the promises of God, but notice that, that because we know the promises of God and know that his character is revealed in his commitments, his covenant is the language we use in the Old Testament, his promise and covenant to be with us and for us no matter what, 
shapes us and changes us such that we become promise-making and promise-keeping people. Now, here's some wisdom a mentor passed on to me, but the way that he began to bank on these promises is that he himself began to make bold commitments. We don't know what they are, but that might seem at first contradictory, right? I'm, my heart is faint, right? I can't go on, I feel far from God, right? But I promise I'm going to fill in the blank. Th- those seem for us deeply contradictory until you look at the character of God. That God didn't make his promise to be with us and for us and to fulfill that promise in Jesus Christ based on some condition that you or I met. Instead, he was revealed through his promise. And we are deeply formed by his promises kept for us in Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All, all, of, all of them. Even the weird ones in Leviticus. Yeah, all those Every one of them for holiness, perfection, and righteousness. Every single one of them is a gift that we receive by faith in Jesus, such that then we begin to make those kinds of promises. A mentor of mine put it this way. We grow from commitment, not into it. There's a practical implication of what he's saying here. He's faint of heart, and yet he's saying, I'm going to make this vow. I'm faint of heart, but I trust that God is going to keep his promise, so I know he's going to carry me through. Now, this is, this is profoundly helpful for us. Again, the language of this psalm helps us, right? So we regularly think that we grow into commitment, right? We kind of have to, and, and that's built into most of our culture, right? You have to meet these requirements, fill out these, you know, complete these prerequisites, meet these conditions, and then you qualify, graduate, get hired, right? Whatever, whatever. you kind of have to like meet these things and then we get there. And, and, and that's how the world marred by sin works. And that makes sense. But that's a, in many ways, that doesn't rightly reflect the heart of God. Now, this starts, I believe, as good news for you and me. That God isn't waiting for you to clean up your act to give himself fully to you. He gives himself fully to you in Christ to clean up your act. Now, this is helpful, especially for you that were like maybe raised in a religious sphere What I just told you doesn't add up, right? You've told your whole life, do, be, act, achieve, and then, right? And Jesus comes along and confounds. I mean, after it was the religious, it was the religious who were the most furious who had him, who wanted him crucified. Because this is this is absolutely right. This is bad. When you tell a really religious person that their religion means nothing, they're gonna want to kill you. Maybe like you right now. Right? But here's the good news: you don't achieve, you don't earn. You don't win the love of God. He gives his promise to be with us and for us. And that shapes us and changes us. And so in light of that, since God's promise comes to us and then forms us, notice, while we often think that we kind of grow into the commitments that we make, right? I hear this all the time. People are like, I'm not ready to get married. I'm like, (laughs) side note, uh, if you're unmarried and someone says, I'm ready to get married, run. Like just, that statement alone, or maybe, maybe again, maybe, they're, or just recognize God's design. This is, a, this is probably a young man with a not fully formed brain, okay? <laughs> Which, again, it's just kind of beautiful. I totally, will you? Yes. Right? So just, just realize that even in this sense, we think like, I'm going to get ready for it. I hear this kind of conversation all the time, and yet, yet what we find is, and I want to encourage you, you don't grow into commitment, you grow from it. The most profound things 
that will shape you, and this is by God's design, are commitments that you make that, frankly, you could only meet by God's grace. After all, that's what church, that's what church membership is. We look at all the promises of God for the, for the covenant community to be, a, to be a family, to be a household, right? To be a structure, to be, right? All the, like these beautiful things, a, a body with many members. And we're like, I'm in. When if you think about it, like if, if you made those commitments only when you're ready, then you're only thinking, like you're only picturing your own ability. You're only you're picturing your own self-sufficiency rather than thinking like it's only by God's grace that this is possible. So I want to commend to you the language here that you might begin to integrate it into the life of faith. The thing that you, right now, the thing that you like, you, you feel a sense that God is pulling you to. It may be sin that God's pulling you away from. It may be something that God's opening a door to and you're thinking, I'm not ready, I can't quite do it. And so you're, you don't want to make any public commitments related to it. You don't want to express any faith because you don't want to you don't, want to, you don't want the real you to be revealed. And I want to encourage you, make those, bank on God's promises and make those kinds of commitments, knowing you absolutely won't live up to them. But God will form you and shape you in the process. Now again, every married person in the room who's been married for longer than 10 seconds feels this, right? I promise, in sickness and in health, and it's like, give me the remote, right? It's like, oh, but that's a formative experience, isn't it? To publicly before God and these witnesses say, I'm going to do this. And then experience, and this is the beauty, in a grace-filled community, people who are not shocked. And they go, I know, but come along and experience grace and growth with me. So I hear the language of, even in the middle of feeling faint-hearted and feeling distant from God, he banked on God's promises enough to say, I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to step towards that. I dare you to look at your sin, the sin, the besetting sin you're trying to run from. I dare you to look at that sin and look at the people around you that it, that it affects and say, I'm going to run from this. I'm never going to look to this again. Bank on God's promises that help you put that sin to death. Maybe not in the way you think, and certainly with a lot of failure along the way, but friend, bank on God's promises. I commend this to you. Maybe there's, God's calling you to do something in the life of this church. Uh, maybe God's calling you out to, to, to live on a mission in your family and workplace, but you're like, ah, they're, you know, they're just not going to, or it's not going to work. I'm not. And friend, I'll bank on God's promises. Make that bold prediction, that bold promise. Make that vow. And then sit back and watch how God forms you in it. Marvel at how much grace that you experience on the other side of that. Because after all, that shouldn't surprise us. That's how God promises himself to us. He looks at us and sees all the good reasons why he shouldn't give himself to us and says, I promise I'm for you. Right? But, but God, what about, nope, I'm for you. But what about when I, nope, for you. But, but Jesus, what about when I, it's finished. We grow from commitment, not into it. But then he says, after calling out to God to, to deliver him and preserve his kingship, it ends, I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to glorify you. I, I want to kind of step out of the way for just a moment here is that we gravitate toward that which is most glorious. 
want to unpack that word praise. I think we can regularly think in, in religious circles, the, the language of praise often is, is, the, is, is like the language of singing, of praying. And it certainly is and can be those things. But praise is a posture that simply is a reflection of encountering and beholding something that is glorious. And so he's saying, I will ever I will continue, right? I will, I will carry on singing praises. I will carry on, the, the language we'll use is glorify, right? I will glorify you as I day-to-day am living in your presence, feel, you know, fulfilling my vow. I'm going to glorify your name. You're going to hear that language a lot, but, but I, I want to maybe kind of demystify it for you. So again, as Western individualists, we tend to think of praise as an act of the will. Right? We tend to think of praise and glory, like I'm going to give glory to this or that. We tend to think that as, as, a, as just kind of something we decide in our own hearts, right? We just look at a few different things and we choose to give glory or praise to this thing. Now, the Bible speaks of it. That, that in some sense is true. But, but the root word of glory and praise here is actually a, a word of weight, so when we talk about the glory, especially you see the, the glory that's revealed to us in Christ in the New Testament, that glory most literally at its root just means weight. So all you physics nerds are going to love this, but like it's similar to what we think about like physics in mass. So if you think about gravity, right? Gravity, which causes us to understand the weight of a thing, is simply a measurement of mass, Gravity is simply an after effect. It's a derivative of mass. That is, if something is large and massive, it exerts a force. It's just a derivative of its being. So, for example, like, think of like the sun, right? Uh, the mass of the sun is so great that it's, it's, it, it exerts a force that can support, right, nine planets floating around it with Pluto or not Pluto, whatever, theoretically speaking, it could eight and plus Pluto, right? So like, there aren't planets rotating in our solar system thinking like, should I or should I not submit myself to the force of gravity? The mass of the sun precludes that choice. It precludes the possibility that they could do anything otherwise. And the mass of that star in the middle of the solar system supports the rotation. And in that sense, the, it has the gravitational pull to support the whole solar system. Glory is the same way. Glory is simply the outworking of greatness. We glorify that which we find to be the most amazing. I'll give you some examples. You might have great ones to fill in the blank here, but it's kind of like if you've, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. It's like walking up to the Grand Canyon. You don't walk up to the edge and look hundreds of feet down what would certainly be your certain, like your absolute death, right? You don't look across the vastness of the Grand Canyon and wonder whether or not you, think it, you should think it's big. You don't, you don't stop and go like, will I, will I give proper glory to the greatness of this thing? Here's the thing, you don't have a choice. Right? Moms who give birth, don't, they don't have that choice when they, when they see their little baby. It's like uh, you, you, something, something that God has built into the system just takes over. When you see something glorious, praise is the natural response. Praise is just simply the byproduct of something's greatness and glory. So now, friend, 
apply that to here. He says, I'm going to praise your name. I'm going to glorify your name. Not because he has it in himself. He's already told us he doesn't. He's already told us his heart is faint. He's already told us he, he feels so far from God. But, but what's he saying? He's saying, if I see you, if I dwell in your tent, if I come near to you, if I can just sense that you're here, then there will be no way. Do you hear that? Ever. I will ever praise, ever sing. If I could just see you, if I could just behold you, I'll never stop praising. So notice, we gravitate toward, I use that word intentionally, we gravitate toward that which is most glorious. And all he's saying is, not an act of will, because that wouldn't help you, right? When your heart is faint, if I just told you, praise God, right? You'd be like, it make it worse, right? You just, your anxiety and fear, you just, well, that made my heart more faint, right? It's crushing, which is what most of you have experienced. But in the faintness of heart, notice he says like, just behold what is glorious. Praise the God who delivers. A side note here for this lament. I, I want to just, before we kind of turn to wrap this up, and I know for many of you that doesn't mean anything. He's not going to wrap up. I will, promise, swear, make a vow by God's grace. So the way of Christ, this is what we learned from laments. The way of Christ is not toughing it out. Notice in his faint-heartedness and his feeling distant, he models for us, remember I told you this is the language we learn in the life of faith. He models the kind of turning from himself banking on the promises of God and trusting that God is going to, God is going to preserve right, the throne and, and God will ultimately receive the praise that he deserves. Notice that at no point in that is he just like looking inside and gutting it out. I want to encourage many of you. This is a rebuke to many of the self-assured and self-reliant in the room, just like me. Like, I can do this, right? That's not helpful. That isn't what we see here. But I also want to encourage many of you who, who, like me, also are faint-hearted, and you're like, I can't possibly do it. And I want to tell you, I know. The psalmist knows. The God of the universe knows. The goal isn't to tough it out. The goal is we turn from our failed attempts to tough it out. Right? Unless you want to try it again. Right? In which case, by God's grace, I'll say, good luck. Right? Let me know how that works out for you. All the problems you have, gut it out this week. And I'll see you next week. And I'll be like, how'd that go? But instead, he says, don't, don't tough it out. Cry out to the God who can hear and listen. Cry out to the God who can lead you to a higher rock, right? What a beautiful picture. Who can be your refuge. Who, if we would just dwell in his tent, we'd experience the shelter of his wings. Isn't that beauty? I mean, isn't that a, a beautiful picture? Isn't that like sheer beauty? He's, he's calling back to the tabernacle. You're meant to get the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, where we find out that at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, inside which are the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Law of God, are two, are two seraphim. And the seraphim have their wings spread out over, do you know what the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called? The mercy seat. And what a beautiful picture. He's like, I, I want to take refuge in your mercy. I want to get under the wings because I know that's where you and your mercy reside. We... We long for that. We don't try to tough it out. 2 Corinthians 7 puts it this way. Paul's talking about this very thing. He says, in order to keep me from being conceited, because he'd experienced a lot of things, but also because he's human and we get conceited, it said that he had been 
allowed uh, or, or God had, had uh, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he'd experience, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your toughness. That's not how it goes. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, Paul has this weird, he says he doesn't want to be conceited, but listen to what he does. He says, so therefore I will boast all the more. I'll boast all the more gladly of what? Of my weaknesses. It's as if he led with them. You're like, hi, I'm Paul. Here's my weakness, right? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that, or in order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am now content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You can hear Paul banking on the promises of God. So, where does that leave us? You behold that which is glorious, We begin to bank on the promises of God, and we trust that he will keep his word. Notice the prayer. Remember that prayer I told you that may or may not belong here? David may have added it later. Someone else may have. For you of God have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. For the Christian, we know that the prayer of David is deeper and more powerful than probably he could imagine. Because after all, you might wonder, did David know what he was praying for? (laughs) I don't know. The Holy Spirit did. And in the promise that he was given in 2 Samuel 7 we find later, and this is, should land fresh on us as we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew introduces to Jesus, us to Jesus as Jesus, the son of David. That there would indeed come a king. One day there would come a king that would be the answer to this prayer, whose life was prolonged even after enduring death on a cross whose years endure for all generations, even after he stepped into the creation he had set before him to become one of them. Indeed, he is enthroned forever before God. Indeed, steadfast love and faithfulness accompany him on his throne. Hebrews 7 puts it this way. He speaks of a, he makes a reference to an Old Testament psalm, and he, he speaks of a man by the name of Melchizedek, a priest king who came and, and blesses Abraham. And he tells this long story so that we would see this promise of this priest king fulfilled in Jesus. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's an obvious statement, right? They were going to keep being priests, but they died. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood. Do you hear the answer to the prayer of David? Permanently. He holds his kingship. He's not just like a ruling king. He's a king priest. He holds that priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is now able to save to the uttermost those, oh, this is such good news for you and me, who draw near to God through him. Since he always, you hear the language, forever, always, utmost, he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints now a son who has been made perfect forever. Do you hear the prayer that David had in brokenheartedness and faintheartedness and feeling separated from him is fully and completely alive and answered for us in Jesus. After all, no one was separated from God like Jesus was on the cross, feeling the abandonment that, that you and I deserve because of our sin. No one felt the shame and awfulness of sin like he did when he bore all of it on himself in the cross. No one longed for the refuge of God's presence than he who went to the cross. And yet no one who was delivered from the enemy like Jesus. No one has ever felt that kind of shame. And yet no one knows the kind of victory we find in 6 and 7. His life was prolonged even through the grave. He endures to all generations to make intercession for you and for me. And in our fear, in our anxiety, in our worry, in our feeling of separation, we know that he's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us, and we can bank on it. Verse 7, may he be enthroned forever before God. Did you hear the book of Hebrews? Did you hear the writer of Hebrews telling us? I have good news. All the prayers of David and the prayers for you and me are answered. And now we are welcomed by Jesus, not with shame and guilt, but with steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 8. Now, do you see how glorious he is? I love the language at the beginning of feeling far from God, right? From the utmost parts of the earth. For New Testament Christians, that shouldn't surprise us. We're sent on mission to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? The ends of the earth. I'll paraphrase a James Montgomery Boyce as he commented on this passage. When we really feel that we are at the ends of the earth, that is when we begin to realize how far Jesus came to save us. What a beautiful revelation. David, who felt separated, has had his prayers answered in Jesus. But you and I, though we were far and far, I mean, as far, we don't even mind saying we were at the ends of the earth. And that's exactly where Jesus was willing to come to deliver us. And he will hear you. He will hear your cries. And he will respond by giving his very self. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you are merciful to us. Thank you, Jesus, that... In our faintness of heart, we were giving refuge from the enemy. In our deepest fears of being separated from you, you come as a victorious king to reign over all things, to restore them and make them right. Thank you that we have hope now. I pray especially for those in the room that maybe are gripped and paralyzed by fear a deep worry or concern, a deep anxiety that goes with them everywhere. I pray even now they would hear the comforting words that there is a king 
who has come to meet with us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we admit times we don't feel this, we don't sense that it's true. Would you draw near to us? Hear our cries and prayers, even the ones we can't even put to words, the ones that are just simply, oh God. For those in the room that are paralyzed by that kind of fear, would you draw near to them and comfort them? Speak to them in ways that only you can. Remind them you're never going to leave them or forsake them. Maybe for the rest of us, we know this. We've heard this good news. You've drawn near to us. You've, you've pursued us to the ends of the earth and drawn us back to the Father. Thank you for that, Lord. And now we ask that you would give us the faith and the ability to bank on your promises and make vows and help us every single day to live in light of your faithfulness. Help us to begin to demonstrate the kind of faithfulness that you've shown to us. Knowing that we'll certainly fail, but, but you will meet us with grace every single day. Thank you for the prayers of David that, that unfortunately he, he in many ways didn't get to see answered. That we in Christ now get to receive. Thank you that all of the prayers in this psalm are answered in Jesus. And all of the yeses we desire in this psalm are given to us who are in Christ. Thank you that we have victory of a, a priest king who endures and reigns over all things forever that he intercedes for us, that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he went to the ends of the earth, the very cross and the penalty of sin itself to prove it. Thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen.